You are listening to the sermon titled, Spirit-Filled Families, from Redeemer Community Church on July 16th, 2023. One note is that on this particular Sunday, the church building was experiencing some issues related to electrical service. As such, the quality of the audio may not be optimal, and there is a short section at the beginning of the message that was not picked up in the recording. We apologize for the inconvenience. We now join Josh Anderson as he teaches from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Good morning. I'm going to do my best to maintain a loud voice, but if I start dipping, people in the back just start doing this. And I'll get the picture. Uh, keep your Bibles open to Ephesians 6. We're going to keep... Uh, marching through the book of Ephesians. We are getting close to the end, as you can tell. Um, and uh, I'm just going to I'm gonna jump in where we're at. And uh, I had all kinds of marvelous creative slides to show you. Of all kinds of work, all for nothing. So uh, I imagine this way better than it is. Um, back in chapter 5, the Apostle Paul told us to be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes on and fleshes out what that looks like in different parts of life. Last week we looked at marriages. Uh, this week we look at how being filled with the Spirit impacts our families. Uh, so I just want to acknowledge from the get-go, Paul's kind of getting up in our business, isn't he? Yeah. He's, he's, uh, he's, he's getting a little bit close. And um, most people don't really like being told how to parent. And, uh, and yet here I am about to tell you how to parent. But I want to be very clear from the outset that um, as I tell you how to parent, I'm pointing at Paul. Your beauty is with him. <laughs> and Paul, I trust, if he were here, he would point at Jesus and say your beauty is with him. So I guess all I'm saying is uh, don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> Nobody taught her how to do it. <laughs> she was just born not knowing some things. <laughs> And she does this, and she loves doing it. Now it's this great big game. She starts running towards him as soon as we say, no! And our poor dog might die of thirst this summer because we had to move this water off of the ground for most of the day. This is what my one-year-old daughter does because she was born just not knowing. Now, I'm guessing you all don't do that. My <laughs> if you do do that, I'm encouraging you to stop. <laughs> but you know what my daughter needs in a phase like this in her life? You know what she needs? Because she thinks that's a refreshing, good time. You know what she needs? She needs parents. She needs parents to help her, to redirect her, to keep her from getting who knows what kinds of sicknesses and mess around with dog's water. She needs parents. And even though you might not be, you, I hope you've grown out of your dog slobber water bath phase, there's still a lot you don't know. And you know what you still need? Say it with me. Parents. I heard some deep voices here. <laughs> you need parents. You need adults who love you, who know what's good for you, and who know more than you. And guess what? God gave you parents. Parents are a gift to you 
and you are a gift to them, and this is God's good design. That's why Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And this is right. This is God's good design. That loving parents, loving adults, come alongside young children who still need to learn, and the children look to them in obedience, and God says, that's right. That's how I designed this to work. Now, I'm glad it's just us here for a minute, kids, because um, I've got to be honest. We've got to be honest about something together. Do you agree? Honesty? Nod your head? Okay. Let's be honest about something. Obeying our parents isn't always easy. Nod your head if you agree. Facts. Facts. <laughs> Obeying our parents just isn't always easy. Um, it's, it's easy to obey your parents when they when they tell you, eat more candy and stay up later. <laughs> it's easy to obey your parents, right? But when they tell you to do something you don't want to do, it gets kind of hard. And sometimes parents tell us things that we don't want to do. And then obeying isn't easy. But you want to know something cool? Kids, do you like knowing cool things? Okay. Here's something cool. This verse says, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Colossians 3.20 says, obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. You want to know what's cool? You, as a kid, have the ability to make Jesus smile. Your life has the ability to make Jesus happy. Do you want to make Jesus happy? I know you do. And God's word tells us that by obeying your parents, you're putting a smile on Jesus' face. I'm not making that up. Isn't that cool? That's really cool. And I want you to know that. And I want you to remember that next time it's hard to obey your parents. I can put a smile on Jesus' face right now by obeying my mom and dad, even when I don't feel like it. That is cool. Even though you're young, Paul doesn't think you're too young to love Jesus or live in a way that pleases him. I think that's cool. And i got to tell you one more thing, okay? The interference is not always easy, and you're not going to do it perfectly. Some of you, I would venture to say, have already messed up once or twice in the years. You're not going to do it perfectly. No one ever has except Jesus. You're not going to obey your parents perfectly. But you know what else pleases the Lord? When you don't obey your parents perfectly, but you respond by being humble and asking forgiveness. That also pleases the Lord. And that's how we grow. And that's how we learn to obey more and more. So kids, look at me. You, in your life now, not when you're older, now can live a life that makes Jesus smile. And that comes through obeying your parents. This is part of what it looks like to follow Jesus even when you're little. Kids, I really enjoyed this little talk with you. I'm glad it's just been us for a little while here. But um, I've got to talk to some other people first and talk to parents even. Um, but before I do that, hold on. Are there any teenagers in the room? 
that I forgot about you. If you're a teenager, I'm not gonna ask you to sit on your knees, just wave at me. Just wave at me. Okay, there's some teenagers in the room. Um, quick word to teenagers. You might notice something that happens in the teenagers. You start making more decisions for yourself. Your parents often, as you grow, give you more and more room to grow, to have opinions, to choose how to use your time, things like that. And as you move closer to adulthood, where you won't be under your parents' authority anymore, the whole idea of obeying your parents starts to change or starts to get maybe a little less clear. But I will say this, we never outgrow God's command to honor our Father. That is not a command we outgrow. As long as our father and mother are on this earth, we are under God's command to honor them, show them honor, to recognize their God-given role in your life and treating them accordingly, to show them respect as God's specially appointed adults, to be your parents, the ones who either brought you into this world or who brought you into their family and into their heart. The ones who got you through the years where you couldn't take care of yourself and helped you outgrow much of your childhood foolishness. As you get older, as you approach that, that transition between being a kid and being an adult, there's this, there's this thing that kind of happens, or that ought to happen, where um, their authority over you is actually kind of decreasing. But as that's happening, I want to encourage you to make sure that as their authority over you is decreasing, that their influence over you is increasing. You're not going to outgrow your need for wisdom. You're not going to outgrow your need for adults further along with you who love you and want good for you. You won't outgrow that. And so make sure that as those years change the authority structure in the relationship, that their influence starts increasing. And parents take that seriously as well. Your parents, teenagers, are not perfect, but God calls them to honor them even as you outgrow their authority. Most of you have not outgrown their authority yet. Kids and teenagers, I want you to keep in mind something. That Jesus was a kid, and Jesus was a teenager. And then Jesus was a grown man. And when Jesus was a kid, he obeyed his earthly parents. And as Jesus became a man, he honored his earthly parents. And Jesus' whole life, childhood, teenage years, adulthood, Jesus perfectly obeyed and submitted himself to the authority of God his Father. He's not asking you to do anything he hasn't already done. And I want you to know that as you learn to obey your parents growing up, you are also learning how to obey your Heavenly Father as you get older. These things are very much connected to each other, which is why... This is so important for us to take seriously. So that's all I'm going to say to kids and teens directly. And uh, I don't know, look at the time. Dads, should we just call it a day? Getting <laughs> <laughs> hot in here. <laughs> Got important things to do. All right, no, let's just finish the passage. Um, dads, can you sit up on your knees for me for a second? <laughs> 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 you would never be able to stand up again.
let's, let's read this again, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let me pause and uh, point out something that Paul is doing in this part of his letter. So Paul is speaking into a Roman culture that had very clear authority structures. It was known and accepted in this culture that wives were supposed to submit to their husbands. Paul wasn't making that up. He was simply redefining it from a Christian perspective. So back in verse 22 of chapter 5, when Paul says, wives submit to your husbands, that was nothing controversial, controversial to his hearers. It wasn't unheard of. He was leading with a command that people were nodding their heads to. What was revolutionary is what he said next to husbands. Husbands, lay your, wife, your lives down for your wives. That was revolutionary. That was distinctly Christian. A new way to be husband. And a very similar thing is happening here at the beginning of chapter 6. It was widely accepted and expected that children should obey their parents. Children in Roman culture were often seen as little more than indentured servants. They were either a nuisance or they were useful. What Paul says next is what changes the game. Fathers, don't provoke your children. Yes, it's part of God's good order for children to obey their parents, but not like that. Now Paul speaks directly to fathers, because in that culture, fathers were the ones with little to no restraint upon their leadership in the home. My hunch is that fathers in any culture usually are the ones who need to hear these words most. And I will say, fathers do have a distinct leadership role in their homes that all of this falls underneath. But I would also say that as Paul moves on here, these words apply to fathers and to mothers. It's not as if fathers don't provoke your children to anger, mothers do whatever you want. Paul has the whole family in view from verses 1, verse 1 to verse 4. So parents do have authority over the children, but it's not our authority. It doesn't belong to us. It doesn't begin with us. It's more like an ambassadorial authority. We are representing the authority of another. Before Jesus ascended back to the Father, he declared, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That means that any authority that we have, inside or outside our home, is supposed to represent Jesus because it's his authority that we're exercising. That should flavor every use of authority in our lives. Not only that, but Paul, speaking directly to fathers, points out that our role as father is explicitly designed to teach our kids about the Father of God. <clears throat> every father who's ever lived has failed to perfectly reflect God the Father in countless ways, but all the same, just like the call of a husband is so far out of reach of any man, this call to fathers is be imitators of God. 
We're still called to imitate him, even though we're going to do it imperfectly, so that our kids see glimpses of the fatherhood of God through our relationship with him. Now, I've been a dad long enough to know that whenever somebody starts painting for me the biblical vision of parenting, it doesn't take long for regrets to start piling up. Any dads, moms, nod your heads to If these next few minutes talking about parenting start to have that effect on you, you start feeling the weight of guilt and regret and shame, hold on because we're going to deal with that before we're done. I think that most honest parents will need to learn what to do with regret sooner or later. But in the meantime, particularly if you're in a season of raising kids under your roof and under your authority, let's come humbly under God's word and be willing to evaluate where things are going well and where things need to change. There are two simple categories here. Parents do and parents don't. There's a negative command and a positive command. Let's keep cruising. Number one, parents don't provoke your kids. And that's all he gives us. Paul makes it sound so easy. Maybe God should have had Isaac write the parenting advice instead of Paul. You have a little more to say. Or maybe Paul feels comfortable saying so little directly about parenting because he's already been talking about parenting this whole letter. He's expecting mothers and fathers are taking the things seriously that he's already said. Things like walk in a manner worthy of the calling which we call with all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. He's expecting mothers and fathers are already taking seriously when he said, don't let any corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for building up that they give grace to those who hear. He is expecting moms and dads are already taking seriously when he said, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. As I said last week when we were talking about marriages, if those things are taken more seriously in your relationships outside of your home than inside of your home, you're living in prayer. Paul has already been giving instructions to Christian parents long before chapter 6. And of course, there's more that he could say directly to fathers and mothers about what not to do. But he felt like in light of everything else he's already said, this was enough. Don't provoke the children. So let's just meditate on that together for a few minutes. What are some ways that parents provoke their children? I've put together a list. It's not an exhaustive <coughs> list. But I will assure you that it comes tried and tested by one of your pastors. <laughs> I've been actively researching for this sermon for 18 years. Yes! <laughs> Thank you, Lady. This list, this list comes as a result of a lot of hard work and dedication on my part to mess up. <laughs> so this is my list. Top 10, you can add to it or subtract from it when you talk and pray over it with your spouse and friends later this week. But here's my top 10 ways parents can provoke their children to anger and may the Holy Spirit shine light where appropriate. It's going to be helpful to have a slide, but I'm going to try to slow down enough that you can write things down if they seem like you should pay attention to them. Top 10 ways parents provoke their children to anger. They provoke their children to anger by, number one, lack of involvement. 
lack of involvement. Kids seem to be born with this innate sense that their parents are supposed to be deeply and interestedly involved in their lives. Who teaches four-year-olds to say, Daddy, watch this. Mommy, look at me. When we aren't there, kids come to believe that we don't care. And they know, deep in their God-given sense of justice, that's not right. We may have all kinds of noble-sounding excuses for why we aren't around or involved in the ways that we wish we were, but those excuses do very little to comfort a son or daughter's heart that seems wired for parental presence. There's more I can say about each of these, but we're going to apply through time. Secondly, parents provoke their kids to anger by correcting more than encouraging. This can be related to number one. If you're not very involved in your children's lives, but every time you are around, all they hear from you is what they're doing wrong, this can be exasperated. That's the word the NIV uses instead of provoked to anger. And even when you are around and involved in your children's lives, if they live more aware of your disappointment in them than in your joy in them, that has a negative impact on their lives. That's not to say parents should be afraid of correcting their children or should hold back when correction is needed. But I think it's fair to say that for most parents, it's easier to notice the things our kids do wrong than the things they do right. Correction and instruction are a crucial part of parenting. We'll get to that in a few minutes, but so is encouragement. Speaking words that build our kids up. Some of you might be mistakenly inclined to think like me that if I encourage my kids, this will give them the, the impression that I think they're doing everything just fine when we all know they're not. I don't think that's actually true. I think actually our encouragement paves the way for our kids to hear our correction and receive it with receptive rather than resentful hearts. May our goal be every day speak more words of encouragement than of correction. Third thing, parents provoke their children to anger by speaking harshly, demeaningly, or sarcastically. It is easy to allow ourselves a tone of voice and choice of words inside our homes that we'd be ashamed of outside of our homes. Are your words giving grace to those who hear, even in moments of correction? Or do your words make your children feel small and like they're not taken very seriously? The father who uses words to belittle or humiliate his children can expect a harvest of anger that we grow. Next, what do we have? Five? Four? Fourth way. Uh, parents can provoke their children anger by lack of patience, compassion, and understanding. Lack of patience, compassion, understanding. Sometimes we get so irritated that our children require parenting. That's like planning. It's the design. We grow up, we get tired. They grow up, they have tons of energy. It's easy to mistake childishness or rebellion. We need to remember, they were born fools just like us. We needed to grow up in wisdom, so do they. God gave them parents as the primary tools to make that happen. Next time you're tempted to think they should have gotten this by now, 
Take an honest look at your own life and how fast do you grow? How much patience do you require? This usually arms me with fresh compassion for sweet little strugglers who take after their dad. Another way we could probably categorize this one and the one before it is we provoke our children to anger by being angry parents. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, neither does the anger of that man. Uh, next, I'm just saying next. I don't know what this is. Uh, we provoke, parents provoke children to anger by having unreasonable expectations. This is kind of related to the previous one. I found it very easy in my parenting, especially of teenagers, to hold them to the same standards I hold myself to. Or expect that they think and prioritize and respond to life like a 42-year-old man who's been walking with Jesus for more than two decades. That's unreasonable. I didn't think like a 42-year-old man when I was in high school. It's not shocking that they don't either. Worse yet, is when we have higher expectations for them than we have for ourselves. We hold them to higher standards than we hold ourselves to. We do it because we love them and we want what's best for them, but it's still hypocritical and it's still unreasonable. And it's very likely to provoke them to anger. <laughs> Next, parents provoke their kids to anger by lack of consistency. Having different expectations at different times. Yesterday, this made you laugh. Today, this makes you angry. Last week, I got in trouble for this. This week, you don't seem to care. That's confusing. Kids of any age. And when they feel like they're walking on eggshells, or don't know what to expect, or like they're subject to whatever your mood happens to be at the moment, that can provoke a child to anger. And that can plant seeds of bitterness and resentment. Number next, children, parents provoke their children to anger by favoritism. It's a painful kind of inconsistency. I don't happen to believe that all kids should be treated the same. Because all kids are not the same. But that's very different from favoring one child over another, or several children over another. I don't think we get there on purpose, but if we do get there, there are a few things that poison a child's soul, like the constant confirmation that he or she is less delighted in than his or her siblings. Take great care of your parents. Mom and dad, help each other realize if your words or actions are telling a story, you didn't know you were telling. Next, parents provoke their children to anger by parenting out of fear instead of faith or wisdom. Parenting out of fear instead of faith or wisdom. Our kids pick up on this as they get older. Of course we don't want bad things to happen to them. Of course we want all kinds of good things to happen to them. So it's very easy as a parent to be overcome with fear as it relates to our children. And if we don't learn how to bring our fears to the Lord, how to bring our children to the Lord, remembering that they belong to him far more than they belong to us, and we are very likely going to be parenting out of fear. Fear will be the guiding factor behind our actions and decisions, not faith, not wisdom. 
And if we parent out of fear, that's not only going to provoke our children to anger, but it may also rob them of opportunities to grow in their own faith. Or rob them of opportunities to learn valuable lessons while they're still living under your roof, sometimes through failure. Might rob them of opportunities to grow in wisdom themselves as they learn to navigate life alongside you. Next, parents provoke their children to anger, please pay attention here, by a heavy-handed use of scripture. Parents can provoke their children to anger by a heavy-handed use of scripture. How many children have been provoked to anger at their parents and at God, or at least at his word, because the Bible was used as a weapon against them? Bible verses hung over their head to make them feel perpetually guilty. Don't get me wrong, God's law does tell us very clearly that we are helpless sinners. But it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his mercy and patience and compassion that win our hearts. Parents, I hope and pray that God's word takes up a lot of your, a lot of space in your own. But when you're struggling with your own sin, how do you hope the believers in your life will bring the word to your life? Let's be extremely careful not to hide our impatience and our anger and our fear behind God's word. That will very likely not produce the good we want to in our children. Number 10. I'll admit we've reached my highest concern for parents in this church, myself included. Parents can provoke their children to anger by prioritizing behavior over the heart. We can provoke our children to anger by prioritizing behavior over the heart. Because that's not the gospel that we preach and celebrate. Caring more about outward appearances than what's really going on on the inside? That's a temptation. And that's a temptation for so many reasons. For one, especially with younger kids, really with every age of kids, for one, it's, it's just more convenient. My job as a parent is easier when my kids do what I say. If I can manipulate them to behave well, whether through rewards or threats or shame, then my life is easier and more peaceful. And for another thing, this is a strong temptation for parents because it makes us look good. Again, rewards, threats, shame, guilt trips, pressure, whatever I can use to get the product I want. Whatever makes my kids look impressive makes me look good. easy to say we care about the heart, but to actually prioritize our appearance. It's not easy to remove self-interest from parenting. But few things are more damaging to our children than this. When we are more concerned with how our children's behavior reflects on our convenience or our reputations, we are setting our kids up for angry resentment at best, or cold-hearted Phariseeism at worst. I'll say more about that in a few minutes. As with the previous one on the list, the far greater danger here for the sake of our children is not their anger toward us, 
but their anger toward or their indifference for the things of God. God help us not provoke our children to be angry with you by our own selfish concerns. That's number 10, but I'm gonna treat myself to a bonus one because we're on such a goal here because nobody makes top 11 lists. So this is just a bonus. 10 plus one, parents provoke their children to anger by not admitting when we're wrong and asking forgiveness. There's something broken and confusing and provoking about parents who proclaim a gospel of love, mercy, grace, forgiveness, patience, tenderness, compassion, truthfulness, and attentiveness, but who don't walk it out, albeit imperfectly. And the way we walk it out imperfectly is by admitting when we fall short. You're going to sin against your children. You already have. You will again. The definition of a Christian parent is not a perfect parent. It's a parent who responds to failure like a Christian. One of the best things we can do for our kids is show them how to respond to failure like a Christian. With humility, repentance, faith toward God. Because our kids are going to Kids are going to stumble. Kids are going to fall, just like you and me. But there's grace enough for them, and we should be the first ones to remind them of that. Fathers, mothers, do not provoke your children to anger. Those are some categories for you to consider. There's probably more. But let's move on to part two real quick. Parents, do. Do not provoke your children to anger, but do bring them up in a discipline and instruction of the Lord. Once again, so few words. He gives us so little on such an important topic. That kind of gives me the impression that there's more than one way to be a faithful Christian parent. Beware the mistake, parents, of believing that there is one right program for raising kids who follow Jesus. God's Word gives us principles that every parent is accountable to, but then there are many different practices and ways that can be walked out in different homes at different times. We need to keep that in mind. So in just a few words, Paul has given us the main task of parenting, the top priority of every Christian parent, and it's this, discipleship. Making disciples. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples. That means starting in our own homes. You and I may have other hopes and goals for our children, but none of them should matter to us more or motivate us more than our desire for them to follow Jesus. Now, I learned something cool this week, that the word that Paul uses for bring them up is actually the same word he already used when he was talking about how we take care of our bodies. He said nourish them. It's the same word he's saying nourish them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I like the flavor that that gives to a parent's role. There are two components here of disciple-making that Paul gives us in the homes, in, in, in our home. Let me return to something I started to say real quick in the previous section. So this is discipline and instruction in the Lord, of the Lord. And the thing that sets, out, sets this apart as distinctly Christian is that from all other kinds of discipline and instruction is that the aim of the discipline and instruction of the Lord is the heart, not outward behavior. 
when Jesus showed up and started teaching, he said things like, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I say to you, don't be angry in your heart. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, don't lust after people in your heart. He taught in direct contrast to the merely outward behavior instruction of the Pharisees, the religious people. He aimed at the heart. He basically showed us we need new ones. Fellow parents, it's frighteningly easy to raise up little Pharisees in their homes. It's just frighteningly easy. Especially if you have compliant kids. The call to Christian parents is to discipline and instruct our kids with their hearts in view and with the grace and mercy of God in view. So discipline. Discipline is the part of parenting that acknowledges that our kids do things they shouldn't do. They shouldn't be unkind to their siblings. They shouldn't disobey their parents. They shouldn't run into a busy street. Proverbs 22, 15 says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from it. As I already said, we should, it should not surprise us that our children do foolish things, but the way that we respond to our children's foolishness will have a lot to do with whether or not they grow out. Discipline is an important way that we get to represent the fatherhood of God. Hebrews 12.6 says that the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. When God disciplines us, he's treating us like his children. His love for us is steadfast, and he's unwilling to let us run unrestrained towards danger, destruction, foolishness. And that's our call as parents as well. God has placed us in our kids' lives to protect them from running unrestrainedly towards destruction. I will admit this isn't the most fun part of parenting. Because discipline takes work, it takes intentionality, it takes patience, and if I could add maybe a surprising word, it takes tenderness. Remember the one whose authority we're representing. We're talking about nourishing them in the discipline of the Lord. And discipline should always have the right goal in view. Hebrews 12, 11 goes on to say that for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So whether you're spanking a young child who only understands the sting of pain, or you're in the more complicated years of disciplining a teenager, all discipline should be done with a redemptive goal. We're aiming at the peaceful fruit of righteousness in our children's lives. We don't produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness through means of harsh or chaotic anger. Parents who discipline in anger and without self-control are not only misrepresenting our God-entrusted authority, but we're also not moving our kids in the direction of righteousness. All right, the second disciple-making component Paul gives uh, us in is uh, instruction, discipline, and instruction. Instruction is the part of discipleship where we not only respond to what's wrong, but we actually teach what's right. Discipline is more reactive. Instruction is largely proactive. We're equipping our kids with wisdom and understanding and holding before them that which is true. 
This also takes work, intentionality, patience, and tenderness. I think there's lots of faithful ways to live this principle out of instructing our kids. But if it is, in fact, instruction of the Lord, then it will necessarily involve the Word of God. You can't instruct children in the ways of the Lord apart from the Word of God, talking about things of God, declaring His works and mighty deeds and faithfulness and goodness, rejoicing in His mercy and grace, holding forth His good and wise commands. And as we've already mentioned, this too can be done in destructive rather than life-giving ways for our kids. And here I think is the difference between destructive and life-giving ways of instruction. When our instruction of the things of God flows out of hearts that cherish the Word of God ourselves, this is attractive. When our instruction flows out of hearts that love Jesus and long to follow Him, that's attractive, or at least believable, to our children. Usually believable. You don't have to be a skilled Bible teacher to effectively instruct your children in the Lord. You simply have to love Him and delight in His Word and His ways and live it out. Failures, repentance, and all, right in front of your family. I'm going to move us towards the end here and acknowledge uh, that issue of parental regret. At this point, we probably have some regret that has settled in on some parents. And um, I trust that a lot of you, like me, realize that raising your kids is the most wonderful, important thing you've been entrusted with. And you realize that you aren't up to the task. As our kids get older, our failures become more obvious. Our kids are only in our home for a limited amount of time, but parenting regrets can be with us for the long I don't think that's God's intention for us. We've been entrusted with the discipleship of our children, and we should take that seriously. But let's be clear, we are not the most important or influential people in our children's lives. There are three persons who far surpass us. In terms of faithfulness, love, wisdom, and power to save our children. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Many people in this room grew up in homes where the name of Jesus was never spoken, where Bibles were never opened, and you're here. Why? Because we have a pursuing God. This is where our hope as parents needs to be known. The grace of God is more than sufficient to redeem our failures. Romans 8.28 tells us that God makes all things work together for the good of those who love him, and all things has to include our parenting failures. I wouldn't be surprised if there's parents in this room who need to lay some regrets in the grave of Romans 8.28. Even if your kids are out of your house or feel out of your reach, they're not out of the reach of God's grace. It was never your parenting that was going to save them in the first place. The same one who showed up and rescued you in spite of your own imperfect parents can rescue your children also, no matter where they are today. 
And for this, we will continue to pray. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Fathers, mothers, do not provoke your children to anger. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's what a spirit-filled family looks like. And it's all made possible because we can be filled with the Spirit because of Jesus. I'm going to finish by taking the Lord's Supper. If you're serving the Lord's Supper, please make your way forward. We're going to celebrate as we close. We're going to remember the faithfulness of Jesus who laid down his life for us. We're going to take our place in line saying, this is my hope, this is my life. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, just ask them to stay in your seat for a few minutes. Everyone else is coming forward, not because anyone here is better than you, but because this is for those who are walking in faith as disciples of Jesus. But I encourage you to sit in your seat for a minute and just reflect as the sweat drips down your face like mine. Let me, uh, let me say a word of prayer for us before we come. Heavenly Father, just pray that you would take your word and that you would do good with it. We are parents, or we are children, or we are friends of parents and children. We need grace. We need your strength. We need your help. We don't depend on our performance. We depend on the performance of Jesus. He lived for us perfectly and died in our place. So Father, would you help parents in this room? Would you help kids in this room? Would you help all of us to have live lives that are worthy of the gospel, whatever stage and season of life we're in. May it be all to the glory of our great Savior, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.